Are you ready to reduce the insane mental load of running a family household and you know your life? I was. This is Jean here. Meet Skylight Smart Touchscreen Family Calendar. It syncs with all your existing calendars galore. This is a sanity saver for me now as a single mom. It shows all family events together in one spot. A dream come true for a mom like me. If it's not in the calendar, it's not happening. Skylight Calendar has made an immediate difference. It streamlined the whole concept of the Family Command Center, giving me hours of my life back fretting over transcription to a dry erase wall calendar. A new lace on life, I tell ya. Rory, my autistic child, finds it an easy modality to use and is particularly fond of the photo feature to view the most current photos of his recent memories. I even caught him creating his first calendar entry the first day it was set up. Now as a special offer, you can get up to $30 off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com and enter code MOMSTALK. Again, skylightcal.com and enter code MOMSTALK. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L.com, promo code M-O-M-S-T-A-L-K. Welcome to Mom's Talk Autism Podcast. We have a very, very special, long-anticipated guest that we have money to have on our show. And in fact, it's not going to just be one episode. There's going to be two. It's that good. So stay with us, and we're going to introduce you to her. When you become a mom, you never imagine your child getting an autism diagnosis. It feels like your dreams have shattered, like a framed photograph falling off your mantle, exploding into a thousand pieces. But instead of trying to glue those pieces back together, this community of moms is here to help you build a new dream, a better one. So join in the conversation as us moms talk autism. Okay, so, I mean, if that wasn't a teaser, um, you know, keeping everybody on the edge of their seats here, well, Mm -hmm. today, just so you know who you have as your host of the podcast, you have myself and you have Tosh, um, and we have our very special guest, Brie Gastaldi. I said that right, correct, Brie? Did I say your last name yes. correct? I thought so. Yeah. All right. Thought I nailed it. Never want to get that wrong. Um, Brie is known. I mean, if you follow some of us online already, she is known uh, as the inclusive educator online. That is her platform. But she actually was and is still formally an educator herself and an expert on the very topic of inclusion. Uh her messaging online and the content that she delivers immediately resonated with me. Uh, so I have been pretty much obsessively following and sharing her content um, for quite some time. Um, you know, no pressure, Brie, no pressure. Uh, that's how much faith I have in But all, all, all the pressure, though, Brie, all of it. <laughs> this is long-awaited information. I've, I've had even staff in my district, you know, poking at me, asking me, when are you going to have her on? When are you having on? I was like, soon, I promise. I promise. Um, you know, just because they also, we, we've returned back to school. Uh, many of y'all that are listening now, but at this point, everyone has returned back to school. And so this 
hopefully these topics that we're going to cover within these episodes are really going to resonate with y'all and you will um, have some solid takeaways, some things to ponder. Maybe you will feel affirmed in your own thinking. Maybe it will expand your thinking. Um, So all that said, what I want to do is turn it over to our lovely guests here and allow Brie to give you a little bit of information about herself, her history, her background, um, so you get to know and love her just like we do. So go ahead, Brie. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. We've been talking about this for months now, so I'm glad that we're finally able to make this work. Um, my name's Brie Gastaldi. I am a teacher, really, at my core. Um, but in my current role, I am an inclusive education consultant, and I work with school districts and individual schools and sometimes some businesses here and there to help improve access to community and academics within their system or um, school or business or whoever it is that I'm working with. Um I really got into special education kind of in a roundabout way, sort of. Um, And I think that it really all started with my own neurodivergence. So I was diagnosed with uh, ADHD way back in the mid to late 90s when girls weren't diagnosed with ADHD, but they were like, that girl, she definitely has it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it was never uh, severe enough to have an IEP or a 504 plan, but there were definitely things that I struggled with in school. Um, You know, impulse control is kind of a hallmark of it, planning, like sequential planning, um, getting homework done, studying for tests. That was really hard for me. I just wanted to be active and, you know, I just had lots of ideas and um, was hard for me to just kind of stay focused on one thing. Um, So as an undergrad, got into college um, and I studied psychology and emphasized in abnormal child psychology, which really kind of helped me understand myself um, and understand the world around me a bit better. Um, and then as I was coming out of grad school or excuse me, undergrad, um, in 2009, which was like the worst year in human history to graduate college with a psych degree, um, I did a few things, but I knew that I really wanted to work with kids. That was kind of the ultimate goal for me. And so I did a couple of things and then ultimately ended up as a paraeducator in a school district. And the, the program that I worked in was specifically geared towards students on the autism spectrum. But um, as we'll probably get into later on, whenever you have a program that is supposed to be for a particular demographic, you really end up getting a, a lot of different um, kids in that program and people in that program. Um, so we really helped a lot of different kids. So I did that for a couple of years and then decided, you know, this is really the path that I want wanted to go on. And I ended up going to grad school and got my master's in teaching um, and taught for several years and then ended up uh, becoming an inclusion and behavior specialist for a large school district here in the Seattle area. Um, 
and then, you know, kind of some things all along the way that has, has led me here. Um, but another thing that I wanted to also mention is that, you know, there's the one piece about being a special education teacher, but then it's like, okay, well, but why inclusion? Um, why is inclusion, why was it something that was like important to my pedagogy as an educator? And, um, I have a sibling who has disabilities and she also was in special education growing up. And um, my mom fought really hard for her to be included. And, um, you know, I saw a lot of the struggles that my mom went through to make sure that my, my sister had access to general education. And I really feel that because of that, my sister has been able to be as as successful as she is now today. Um, you know, when she was in fourth grade, she was a non-reader. She really struggled a lot. Um, and, you know, she was pulled out for small groups in a special education classroom. But my mom really fought for her to, um, you know, still have access to all of the same opportunities that her peers had. And because of that, you know, my sister was able to graduate with a high school diploma and went on to college and got a college degree and then was um, in the Peace Corps and lived abroad for a couple of years. And she recently graduated from grad school um, and is now a licensed mental health therapist. Um, and I really attribute a lot of that success, not only, I mean, obviously her own hard work, but also my mom's advocacy for her to be included. Um, because, you know, and in my experience as an educator, if and in the school districts, I've seen a lot of kids that were similar to her profile and who weren't included and who weren't given the same opportunities that she was given. And just thinking, kind of thinking about like where the trajectory of their life can possibly go and how different that is, that could be for another person um, if they don't have access to those same opportunities. So that's kind of why inclusive education and accessible education, whatever you want to call it, um, has been sort of my, my thing and why I, in every, in every school that I've ever worked in, why I've always pushed for, you know, my, my students are going on that field trip. No, my students are going to go to math because they're on grade level for math. There's no reason for them to be in my room for this. Like, always pushing and finding opportunities for students to be included um, has always been just kind of the um, foundation of my pedagogy. And so, um, and that has led me here. Yeah. yeah. It's I, really quickly. It sounds like your mom was kind of a, a trailblazer in, in the sense of um, inclu inclusion. What can just, just a quick, like, so we have a time frame of like what years were those in? Was it back in the early nineties or, um, with your sister? Um, yes, I would say so. Probably late nineties, early two thousands is probably the time frame of that. Yeah. Okay. She, okay. Yeah. she younger I mean, than you. Just in your she is. Okay. Yeah. She's younger. She's younger than you. Okay. Yeah. Cause just probably in the, in the, in the time that you've been an educator, you've probably seen a difference in 
you know. Yeah. Well, and my mom really kind of saw the writing on the wall. And one of the things that she always used to talk about was, um, well, if she can't read and if she's not able to be in language, like a, a second language, how is she going to get into college? Like she was like thinking as a yeah. fourth grader, she's thinking about what's going to happen in 12th grade when she's going to apply to colleges. Cause in my mom's head, my sister was going to college like that. There's, yeah. there's no reason why she shouldn't be able to have that opportunity. And she's right. She, there is no reason why she shouldn't have that opportunity. So she was just kind of thinking really far in the future and how the decisions that she made now with regards to my sister's programming and IEP, how that could potentially impact her ability to access things in the future. Right. And she, yeah. and well, she also how- had an IEP on the very initial heels of of the edge of IEPs and IDEA being instituted, you know, which was in the early 1990s. So she's like starting it in the, you know, later 1990s, early 2000s. That's still in its like yeah. inception. And so you, she was really climbing hills of resistance and working against these house, house think tanks that only really siloed these kids. Like that was it. There was no such thing as an integrated classroom. And if you wanted that for sure, then you are probably not going to have the supports that you want. Um, Well, and I think another thing too, um, which again, we'll probably get into as we keep going, but the number one predictor of inclusion is zip code. And we just so happen to be in a really awesome school district too. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think well, that also made a huge difference. I think that's just incredible in and of itself of your mom having that, that for, you know, the forecasting, um, because so many of us parents are in it, you know, we're in it right now, we're in the hard and and, and the mud. And so we're just really trying to, mm-hmm. you know, just survive sometimes, trudge through it, yeah. you know, and, sur- and survive. And it's, and, um, you know, to think about like, no. I'm not going to listen to what they're saying that my child is not going to be able mm-hmm. to do. My child, I'm, I'm going to put that out there that my child is going to do this and we are going to figure out a way for that to happen. You know, right now in this grade, whether it be, you know, first, second, third, fourth, um, thinking about what middle school is going to be like, thinking about what high school, you know, what we want for them in those uh, schools. Right. So because it's because super thinking awesome. about the trajectory of the lifespan. So you, you gave yes. us like, your kind of like inner drive, what motive your motivation, but like what has now led you to the, have the exact platform you have now. Um, and now what have you, you know, like kind of the trailing along, like what is the history? What is how his inclusion was defined, how it may currently be defined and how you would like to see it be <laughs> defined. <laughs> Which question do you want me to answer first? <laughs> well, answer the, you know, the first one, like, what, Let's start with this. I, cause I, you know, you've told, I mean, personally, like one-on-one you've kind of shared with us, like, you know, right when you were kind of asked to kind of return back to the classroom or have this like leadership mm, role yeah, in yeah. the, in the district that you were currently working in at the time. And you were like, you know what? No, thanks. You like saw this other yeah. vision. So can you like, walk us through that. Yeah, for sure. So I'm in Washington state. There's a lot of stuff happening around inclusionary practices here in Washington state. Um, 
and really the ball kind of started getting rolling here probably in 2017-ish, 16, 17 maybe. Um, and so when I was a classroom teacher, um, I, like I said, I was always working on systems and structures and ways to uh, support my students, our students in general education settings. Um, and I, on several occasions, invited my uh, director to come and see what I was doing because um, parents were really liking it. And other, I worked in a small district at this time, and other parents from other schools wanted what I was doing for their child. Um, so we were kind of like trying to figure out how we could expand that work to other schools. And so, um, and then around that same time, I want to say 2017, that director actually ended up moving districts and became director of inclusionary practices for a neighboring district. And around that same time, I had actually left the classroom um, just for like for personal reasons. And she reached out to me and was like, hey, I need um, an instructional coach. Like I need someone to come and sort of be work under me. Um, so she pulled me um, away from what I was doing back into the school districts. Um, I was like, if there's one person that's going to get me to do this, it's going to be this person. And if there's one thing it's going to be, it's going to be this exact role. So it was just kind of like a beautiful um I don't know, yeah, coincidence or yeah. something like that, that, the you know, the planetary alignment or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I moved over to that district and became inclusion and behavior specialist for that district. Uh, so that started in 2018, I think. Um, so did that for a few years and then the pandemic hit. Um, we were doing some really awesome work around co-teaching. Um, a lot of things were happening in that district. We were increasing the FTE. So we were increasing the number of um, actual educators that were in the building. So we were able to do some more things. So a lot of training, a lot of coaching, a lot of uh, leadership meetings, a lot of strategic planning. Um and roll out. And, you know, it was just, it was really awesome work. We also uh, curriculum adoption, making sure that it's accessible, um, all of that stuff. And then, you know, we all know what happened in 2020 and schools shut down and things just became wild. I don't really know <laughs> any other way to describe it besides that. Um, but, you know, what we had been working towards, which was accessibility, just kind of like, no one had access to anything, even general education, you know, the more typical learners, it was hard for them to access education at that time too. So let alone, you know, learners who uh, communicate with an AAC device or learners who don't know how to manipulate a mouse on a computer or, you know, those kinds of things, those students definitely didn't have access. Um, but we just kind of, it, it was sort of like fight or flight mode. We had a lot of different things going on and a lot of, it was just a lot. Um, and 
So sort of coming out of the pandemic, they wanted me to focus on recovery services, which is sort of retroactively providing a lot of those services that were missed during the pandemic, trying to provide those. So trying to coordinate how to provide those. Like compensatory services. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Although compensatory services would be more like required based on law because you did something wrong. Whereas recovery services was more like we need to make up, like we recognize we need to make up for all of this time lost and we want to provide these services to you. So how are we going to do it? Um, And so that's kind of what they wanted me to do. And I just, that's not where my heart is. That's not, um, compliance is not my favorite thing in the world. So, um, you know, I respectfully declined, but sort of my thing was like, but I have a lot of ways or a lot of ideas for how we can work together contractually. Um, and then they hired me. So they were my first sort of client and it was just a super small little professional development thing that I did. And then, um, I started working with, uh, a business coach to try to help me sort of figure out what exactly it is that I wanted to do. And, um, you know, slowly from there, I started the inclusive educator on Instagram and started posting things and, um, started building that community, which was super cool. I have obviously met some really awesome people like you guys, um, and have just been connected with literally people all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. India, Australia, um, you know, the Italy all like all over and it's just so so cool um and all over the country too so kind of you know slowly but surely started building that community and meeting really awesome and also um thought leaders in the field too like um different organizations and things like that that now I'm able to work with and um yeah, the world, so that's kind of the world just kind of opened up and allowed you yeah, to yeah. expand yeah. what you've intended, what your own personal mission and passion is. Um, mm-hmm. And so really kudos to you, too, for recognizing in yourself saying, you know, like, first off, you're an educator. You know that there is a need to help those kids that needed to make up whatever they needed to make up and pour into them and you probably have a brilliant way of knowing how to connect with them. So I'm sure, again, that's not an easy decision to make, but knowing that like, that's not truly aligned with really what I want to do. And it's going to make me happy. That's going to end up making me miserable. And I think I'm sure you're not the only educator that feels that way, feeling compounded from, you know, this, additional pressure that's happened because it's one thing to be in the pandemic, but rebounding from the pandemic has been a whole other host myriad of, of, of obstacles and challenges. So that's truly, truly awesome. So why we, you know, why you mentioned, obviously your passion is inclusion. So what to you, what, what is inclusion to you? And because everyone has a different definition and I think it would be nice if society will eventually settle on <laughs> what the actual, what, what it should be. And I think it takes people like you and P- and people like us, these types of platforms to start sending that signal out there and being unified in that delivery. So what, what do you think it is? 
Well, it's interesting you say that because I kind of feel like if we were all on board, there wouldn't even need to be a word for it. Right. Right. <laughs> right? It shouldn't even be a thing. Um, it should just be how yeah. the world functions. Right. Like, like you said, everyone has a different definition for it and there isn't really a formal definition of inclusive education. And I kind of jokingly, but seriously say sometimes, and it is, um, the day I can just call education, education instead of inclusive education is like when I'll know my work is done. Um, but obviously we aren't there yet. So how would I do uh, define it. I would define inclusive education as a systematic approach to ensuring that number one, not only do all learners, all people feel like they belong to the system um, and they, you know, feel a sense of community within that system, um, but they also have equal access to community and academics whatever that might look like for them. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that equity factor, <laughs> because mm -hmm. what one person needs is not what another person needs. And it's like, that should be like the norm that we under, that is. But also what is, what is good and needed for one is good for all. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. There's a lot of data that, that proves that actually. And I always say that to people all the time. Um, you know, the, the random ordinary <laughs> citizen benefits every single day from infrastructure that has been created because there are people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. The wheels mm -hmm. on your suitcases, that adaptation mm -hmm. was made to accommodate people with disabilities that was designed for people with disabilities, not for our, you know, not for our enjoyment, pleasure and luxury and ease, but doesn't it make our lives a lot simpler and easier? You know, you don't even realize your people are just ignorantly walking around having no idea. I mean, uh, just everything. I mean, even down to the most obvious things like ramps and elevators, what would your life look mm -hmm. like if you didn't have that? Um, mm -hmm. Those big things that scream out loud, but there are smaller things too. And we all benefit of it. And I've always felt that way. I've, I've literally Well, and the thing way. about disability too is like anyone can become disabled in an instant. Right. Um, and that's one thing that I try to talk about on my platform too um, because I had, my dad had a really bad in injury uh, about 10 years ago. Now, um, we were swimming in the ocean and he dove into a wave and hit his head and became a quadriplegic. Like it can literally happen in an instant and it can change the rest of your life. Um, and so what we do, what we do with, uh, for people with disabilities, actually benefits everybody. Right. Yeah. Totally and people with disabilities are in our families. They're in our social circles. They're like, why wouldn't we want to make sure that our friends and our family have access to everything else that we have? That we it's, have it's the to. largest minority group that anyone can become a member of at any time. Mm -hmm. It's 20% yeah. of the population. So chances mm -hmm. are that you, someone is, you're related to them. Their friend, 
they're they're in your community somehow, some way. You just we, but somehow it all still lurks in, in the shadows there. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's and we all have accessibility needs at some point too, mm-hmm. like pregnant women or if you have some sort of injury or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So what um what what deficits or other issues you think are prevalent in the in our current education system that that may be i don't know if that's what's impacting you know impacting getting inclusion much more you know stream mainstreamed um or if it's like holding it back or uh, making it harder, creating more barriers. What, what is it? Do you, what do you examine? Well, I think one thing is, um, like we kind of talked about, there's no real definition for what it is. Um, so people will be like, we'll, we'll say something like, Oh, well, we have a program for that. Mm-hmm. We have an inclusion program at our school or they'll say, um, Oh, my school is fully inclusive. And I'll, and I'll be like, oh my gosh, tell me more about that. And they'll say, well, we collapsed all of our special education programs. So we just have one resource room now. And students now have access to lunch and recess and specials. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, so when, I'll, when do they go to, um, you know, reading or math or writing or like any sort of special event, oh, well, they, sometimes they do, but, um, and that that's when I'm like, yeah, okay, so just because we collapsed some programs doesn't mean that we're actually fully inclusive, or just because you have an inclusion, a quote, inclusion program, or an equivalent, different districts call things different things, like um, integrated academic, academic program or, you know, something like that. They have fancy ways of spinning it or um, calling it something that sounds really good. But but in reality, it's still an, a, a segregated program. Um, and oftentimes the, quote, inclusion program or the integrated education program or whatever they call it is, um, you know, a, a classroom with one teacher and a normal size classroom, but half of the students have IEPs. Another quarter are students with who are struggling or, um, and then another quarter who are English language learners. So it's like, okay, but that's actually not an inclusive setting. That's that's a that's a special education classroom, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They just they've just reassigned the name. Yeah, we're just and you're putting a lot of pressure on one teacher to to support try all to make those that kids work to be able yes. to switch yeah. all those gears. With yeah, bilingual yeah. by well trying to you know English language learners and it's and- well intentioned. I get it. It's well intentioned. They're trying to um, like. Uh, funnel their resources into one place. So if it's, it's easier for the, the OT to come to that one classroom, it's easier for the English language teacher to go to that one classroom and do intervention. It's easier for the LAP or Title I or whoever to come into that one classroom and provide intervention. Mm. But that's, yeah. but that's still making it not, administratively convenient. Yeah. So necessarily so making, make it LRE. <laughs> 
Yeah. Which is least restricted. Just because it's easier for you doesn't mean that it's better for the student. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So like with my child's, uh, the program that Jack is in, uh, he is in an integrated academic program. So um, in his IEP, he is, you know, a certain percentage in SPED and then a certain percentage in his general education classroom. Um, That percentage being, you know, first thing in the morning where it's kind of just whatever it is that they do. And then, uh, of course lunch, recess, any extras, so music, PE. Um, But when it comes to his actual learning, you know, especially because he has learning disabilities, he is being taught that in this bedroom. And so as a parent, you know, I can understand and I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, like, how is it teaching... um, our kiddos, you know, our neurodivergent kiddos, and then how is it teaching the neurotypical kiddos in his general education classroom know that they're still different? It's still different because they're still being pulled out and taken into a different area 60% of their And you don't know if they're being exposed to grade level content. There's still a way. Right. So, I mean, to me, like a, and I don't even know if this is feasible, Bree, but you are the expert. So you (laughs) You tell me, but would it be a better setting would be having their, having more paras being able to come in and be, okay. No, yeah, a para is not the solution. Yes. <clears throat> it's not the solution. And, and oftentimes, you know, parents will fight for that uh, because they think that it'll help provide access to right. the general education classroom. Um, but it, that's really just, it's simply not the case. The band-aid. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not really even a very good band-aid either. And, and I yeah. will say, I mean, I start, like I said, I started my career as a paraeducator. There are incredible paraeducators out there and we absolutely right. need paraeducators in our system, but hiring more paraeducators is not going to solve the accessibility issue because, right. and there's a lot of reasons why, Um, But in my head, like one of the biggest reasons why is because you can hire anyone off the street to be a paraeducator. That doesn't mean that they're trained. And in a lot of places, paraeducators are um, have the least qualifications. So you really only need a high school diploma or a GED. GED, um, And then in some places, like I think here in Washington state now, paraeducators actually have to pass a, a test. Right. Um, but still it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty basic test, basic test. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Ba- but paraeducators aren't trained to, um, you know, support, uh, like challenging that. externalizing behaviors. They aren't trained to know how to modify curriculum. They aren't trained to right. be content experts. Um, on, on reading, writing, math, these like, you know, IEP areas. Um, so, so yeah, we can sit someone or we can pair someone, pair a paraeducator with a student and have them sort of walk around with them and do things for them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually having access. I, I would, I would even argue that sometimes they, they have less access. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
and are stigmatized more because now like, oh, now they have this, yeah, they have this, they have a harder time making friends because they always have this adult kind of like following them around. Right. 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 Okay. And a really well-trained paraeducator might be like, might have one student in mind that they're working with and supporting, but they are trained to know when to back off um, Mm -hmm. and when to let students kind of mess up and fail and let them fail and let them figure out that they failed and, and um, let them try to fix it themselves without intervening at all. Um, Whereas, you know, an untrained person might just be like, Oh my gosh, they're going to fail. I'm going to step in before it even happens to prevent it from happening. Um, But so there's that. Um, yeah, I would not say paraeducators are the the solve yeah. for that. Well, and I, I asked that question, Bree, be, only because as a as a parent, you know, a lot of us don't. Yeah. We don't know yeah. these things, you know, obviously why we're having you on mm-hmm. the show. But, um, you know, we think that this is the best situation for our kiddos, mm-hmm. most of us. Of course. You know, I, and I should, generally speaking, but um, because it's it's how it's displayed to us. It's how, how we're, you know, approached by our kids teams. It's, it's what's best, you know, the best interest for our child. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the beginning, <laughs> from diagnosis, you know, most of us have been trusting mm-hmm. in those professionals, you know? Um, and I would say that, you know, uh, there are obviously situations where a one-on-one paraprofessional is absolutely needed. Um, it's really hard to fade that one-on-one para if a student gets um, dependent on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really, so because of that, we really have to think about is a one-on-one aid going to be needed for the rest of this person's life? Right. Yeah, and it's right. different. It's that's a scalable great question. A great scalable thought. for d- depending on you know all of our kids. So you talked about a lot of mm-hmm. things that immediately jumped out at me. You know, I I live in a district, or I moved to a district that had more. They were moving in more of a direction, I would say, of being established as an inclusive district and having more accessibility and having more integrated uh, and mainstream classrooms with our special education kiddos. Um, not perfect. We first ended on what we started on one campus and now we're on a different campus. I would tell you on that particular campus, the paras were not trained. They were not expanded in their, their understanding. There was not continued education for those particular ones. They were not, it was not encouraged. The team really wasn't established. Um, they were really just a body um, that made it put more pressure on that particular teacher, um, in that, in those cases. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily as helpful, but shifting gears, moving to the campus that we're at now, the paras or some of them have been with the district for a long time, like moving into two decades, you know, and are tenured and go to continued education and and development and take that training and they learn to scale their intervention tactics. Um, I feel lucky. Right. But I know being even that's, what's hard for me as a trustee in the school district to know that this happening on one campus 
this isn't happening on all the other campuses in our district, right? Mm-hmm. And this just that campus is moving in that right direction. Again, still, again, it's not it's not perfect, but there's there there's still limitations, and there's still some kids and some teachers that really do silo that, oh, well, you're a SPED student, so you're not from my classroom. And it's that idea of, and you haven't said it yet, but I'm going to bring us there, is that it's this whole idea that the belief that inclusion is proximity. Oh, well, we're, we're placing your child in specials. We're placing him you know, for instance, you know, and I've already had that type of plan when he was in pre-K and kindergarten, um, which was, well, you'll be in the general education room for, you know, morning announcements and circle time and stuff. But then we're going to move you over or we're going to pull you out for all of your other stuff that you have to do. And so there was a little exposure to those general education common courses, main curriculum courses. So he really wasn't getting getting that exposure. He was just busy being therapized and kind of like pulled around and having to transition all the time, which actually for Rory was a lot more stressful at that time when he was at that age. Um, and now he, I mean, I do... I've been lucky for the past two years, or I want to say two and a half, because the initial teacher, I guess the second grade teacher, she did an okay job. Wasn't I wasn't blown away, but it was miles above where we had been, where she started. She had the understanding to present grade level work, to scale it, to meet the modalities that Rory could perform, right? And build from there. And that was the first time I got to see that happening and that's made a huge difference. And then the last year teacher, she stepped it up. She stepped it up to really increase uh, Rory's capacity. And then now this neck, this fourth grade teacher, she's doing the same thing. And, but I'm wondering why, where we are, I feel like I'm in this bubble, you know, what's it going to be like transitioning into, into middle school. And again, how do we get this approach to be what the approach is across the board, you know, and finding those teachers and training those teachers. Like you said, I I loved how you pointed out that the answer isn't another paraprofessional. I think some of the thinking as parents is that we're like, Oh, well, we don't want to put any more pressure on the teacher. She has so much on her plate, you know? So if we just get her another body to support what she's doing, then that will solve the problem. I think there's like that would, that's the some of the logic in it for a lot of parents is like, okay, well, we don't want to stress the general education teacher out, but we really want our kid in a general education setting just with the right supports. And it's really defining what those right supports are. So. Well, I think a few things came up for me as you were talking. The first thing is shifting our, the way that we think uh, about, so it, special education is not, uh, it's a service. It's not someplace that someone goes and like kind of the more you sort of sit and ruminate on that, the more it might kind of start to paint a diff little bit different picture in your head. So services should come and go. Um, 
from the general education classroom. It really shouldn't be, special education isn't a classroom, it's a service that's provided. Um, so just kind of thinking like, oh, well, they're going to go to this other special classroom where all of this special stuff happens and that's where they're going to be able to learn. That might be the case for some students. And I don't want to say that, um, that you know, a one size fits all thing is not obviously the right approach. There are going to be kids that need a separate setting, but um, I think we have to be a little bit more careful and intentional about when we pull someone out of a general education classroom and what they're missing when they when they are pulled. So really kind of starting to think about and process the idea of special education being a service, not a room. I love that. Right. My my body and my brain is just like exploding. <laughs> so well, and just like I would challenge you and like anyone who's listening to this to just sort of like sit on that for a little bit and think about it because um, it, it will kind of start to shift the way you think about um, special education in general. Um, and yeah. it was never intended to be a classroom either. It was intended to be a service, but for some reason it has turned into a classroom. Into a, yeah, segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. the other thing that sort of came up for me when you were talking about that is like, how do we, how do we measure inclusion? So how do we even know if someone's being like authentically included? So just because they're like in a general education classroom doesn't necessarily mean that they have access to anything. Um, And we can keep talking about paras just because they have a para with them in a general education classroom doesn't mean that they actually have access to content. Uh Um, Uh especially if that para isn't well-trained and they're just sort of like helping them along the way, just sort of like sitting right next to them and doing everything for them the whole time. Them on task yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Learned mm-hmm. helplessness. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite terms mm-hmm. that happens mm-hmm. with a lot so of how, how do we, how do we measure it? And I, I personally don't know of any sort of assessment or uh, survey or measure that, measures it well. Um, but one way that we can measure it is through LRE data. So least restrictive environment data. Um, so you as parents can look at your child's IEP in their service matrix. So like so-and-so is being, um, pulled out for, you know, reading, writing, and math for 30 minutes a day. Um, four times a week and social group, you know, whatever it may look like for your child in that section where you're sort of talking about all of the minutes mm-hmm. and how it's uh, broken down broken. through the day. Um, you will see that there is a section in that document that um, the teacher has to check a box saying that your child is included for zero to 39% of their day. 40 to 79% of their day and 80 to 100% of their day. Does that sort of, um, do mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about? That mm-hmm. part of the IEP. So that data is shared um, and shared to the district and shared to, and then the district sort of gathers all that data and shares that with the state. And then the state gathers that data from all of the 
districts, and then they also share it to the federal government. So we can see, um, you know, the av- last time I looked, the average was, I think it was like 60 2%, I want to say, 62% of students with IEPs are included in general education for 80% or more of their day. Okay, so 62% uh-huh. of learners with IEPs are included for 80% or more of their day. So that's the entire country. Um, and then we can, so if we look at this on like a, like a global scale and we compare the United States to other countries who have similar reporting systems, countries like uh, Spain, Germany, Sweden, UK, they're actually at anywhere between 97 and 99%. So 97 to 99% of their learners with IEPs are included for 80% or more of their day. So that's a pretty huge discrepancy between where the United States is at and where other developed countries are are at also. Right. Um, And so what are some things that we can learn from those other countries? Well, um, we know in the UK that all educators are, have to go through special education training, mm-hmm. right? So it, it also comes down to teacher prep programs. Mm-hmm. So of course, students aren't <sighs> being included if their teacher doesn't feel confident and competent that they can include them authentically. Oh, I have mm-hmm. such a good example of that. I, <laughs> I have such a good example of that. So yeah. we did... I was on a platform or a group um, called Educators in Solidarity. We had it was a it was a special education panel. I was on it with another woman who is an advocate for uh, the Arc of Texas, and she had just did a presentation at University of Texas, uh, the graduating class that year, and this was like maybe two, maybe three years ago that this conversation happened. She did this presentation. She asked all of the educators in their room to raise their hand if they feel comfortable having a special education student in their classroom. Not one raised their hand. Exactly. The whole graduating class. Mm -hmm. If that is not an indicator that it's like, okay, well, we are clearly missing some tools here to equip our educators who are going through the system to feel comfortable with different types of learners in their classroom. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, It's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And it also sends the message that, that, um, you know, there are these special people that are especially qualified to, teach these certain kids. So like, oh, I don't have that additional training. So therefore I, I can't do it, but Mm -hmm. all kids can learn and you're a teacher. So we can figure this out Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we can work together on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or why isn't this something that's just part of 
getting your and I think that it's getting better but but you know when I work with teachers I understand their anxiety around it I would say teachers are are very um perfectionistic and Mm. and like for a good reason. You have 30 some odd kids in front of you. You want to make sure that your plan is to a T as an educator, we've all had that lesson where we've completely screwed up. (laughs) So the more we can have like a well thought out plan and um, lesson for the day, the better. So if we can't, if we don't feel comfortable, um, in what it is, whatever it is that we're doing, we're, we're not going to even want to like try it because we know what can happen <laughs> when we have that, that lesson go wrong or, you know, this whole thing just completely fall apart or, you know, whatever happens. So I totally get it. I understand the, anx- the anxiety. And if you didn't have anxiety, that would tell me that you have some experience with it, really. Because mm-hmm. you've mm-hmm. basically been taught throughout your entire student teaching and teacher prep program that someone else needs to, to do this. That's not something that you're qualified to do. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and And then then there's the obvious belief that like a lot of people still hold the belief that they don't want students with special needs in their classroom. They don't think that, um, that they have anything to learn from a child with a disability, that they that mm-hmm. they have nothing to contribute. I mean, I I do beliefs and values, uh, um, like activities, all the time with educators, and and a lot of people hold those beliefs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is you got to be able to deal with those. There's 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 so much even behind that. Yeah. you know that's. Well, we Something live in an ableist society. About. You just yes. took the words yeah. right out of my mouth. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I just, and she breathes out. There like, we go. We live in an ableist society. Ableism. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the part for me that, that, you know, what you said, talking about just resonating on, you know, uh, inclusion isn't a classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look at, every single year that, that Jack has been in elementary school. And it's always been that one teacher that has all the, you know, for in our elementary, it's the IAP program, all the IAP students in her classroom or his classroom. And, um, it, it's disheartening. It's disheartening, you know, because first what I think is, are these other teachers not qualified or do these other teachers not want these students? Or is this what our district thinks is the best thing or our, you know, our principal, whatever it might be. Um, And then how hard is that for that teacher? You know, like they're already classrooms oversized, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and they are, then they're getting, you know, however, a handful of students who are on an IEP and, um, need that extra care and attention in the sense of, you know, planning and, um, meetings, et cetera. It's just bizarre to me. It's bizarre. And I feel like I, I sit in a semi-decent district, yeah. but yeah, you feel all you the know. time. You say it all the time. But, You're but like, I just, feel like I'm in a privileged district for where I live. Yeah. The, these are the, all the thoughts, Brie, that are, that are coming to my mind that, that I'm sure people listening right now are like, it's like the, 
emoji head exploding, you know, the brain exploding. It's like, these are not even things that, you know, like most of us are even thinking about or understand or whatever it might be. So, um, man, it's, it's kind of rough hearing this, you know, um, Um, it's because it's a, I'm a systems person too, Brie. So that's number one. So like, this is like a preferred topic for me, not just because I'm passionate about inclusion, but because I'm constantly looking at it's, it's a big picture thing. It's the, these are people, these types of practices are currently in play because this is what people have become. This is, this is what we do. This is Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. habit. Um, It's, it's habitual. It's not, we, we don't know another way. And to think about implementing another way, it has to go all the way up the top of the train chain and start up there. So then you can then trickle it all the way down. It's hard mm-hmm. for it to just be one campus administrator infiltrating right. that change because she still has to deal with the requirements that are set by her, by the district or the state or, um, and like, and again, those disparities are, are far and wide. And so it's like, you got to get your, your superintendents and your leadership of that district on board with these concepts to say, we need to reimagine. And you would think like when we were talking about the pandemic, I remember conversations coming up of like, did you think it was our time during the pandemic to reimagine special education? The answer for me is yes and no. Yes. There wasn't, then, then, then the reason for the no part of it is because you were too busy trying to survive. You couldn't make meaningful decisions and change, but it was at least the time to become, I feel fully aware of it. It was time for people to wake up and to acknowledge it. And so why we are stepping out of it and we're rebounding to me, to me in my mind, in a perfect world, this is the time where you instigate that change, where you start to move in that direction. Because again, like those accessibility needs, it wasn't just, I felt like I was sitting back going like, why are you guys all freaking out? We've been living like this for a long time. Why, why are you freaking out? Oh, you don't like it. You don't like it. You don't like being isolated. You don't like being alone. You don't like having the resources that little Johnny needs. You know, it's not cool. Is it? It's not, it's not, it's not a cool life to live. It's a different kind of life. Mm -hmm. And so we, we've been living like this. You just don't even know, like, this is our normal. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I think I, I am constantly trying to engage in those conversations and having these types of meaningful conversations and opportunities to have educators like yourself on to explain, like to identify mm-hmm. what's going on. Like, let's just, let's just identify what it is we're actually dealing with here, why the problem exists. And then maybe we can figure out what we can do about it. But if we're not really going to, if we're just going to poo-poo it and turn a blind eye to it and pretend it's not existent, we really, we really can't fix it. Um, Mm -hmm. So you've done, I mean, you, you have a lot of stats on like statistics and stuff. Like you mentioned some already during our talk here, but is there evidence-based data that supports that a child that is in an inclusive environment, all children, are they guaranteed better outcomes or is there, 
or is there data that supports the opposite saying, you know, well, for your child to have the best outcome, they need to be in a self-contained classroom. So a child with an intellectual, like Jack has an intellectual disability. Is it, is there data that shows Okay. It's better for him to be, yeah. There so. she goes. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Bree's face, by the way, because you could just like, it's like, I, I know when she's ready to just go on a. <laughs> no studies conducted since the late 1970s has shown an academic advantage for students with intellectual and other developmental disabilities educated in separate settings. Okay. And um, there, so, okay, we were just talking about LRE data. There is a school district that is um, right outside the Portland area. Um, They, so they include their- Portland, Oregon, y'all. Yes, Portland, Oregon. 94% of their learners are included for 80% or more of their day, one of the highest in the country. And when they started their inclusion journey, and this is what, you know, episode two will be all about the how. When they started their journey, I want to say maybe 12 years ago, um, not only did they see increased graduation rates for their learners with disabilities, they actually also saw increased graduation rates for their learners without disabilities. So, and a meta-analysis, I want to say it was a 2008 meta-analysis of like 1,100 studies or something like that, showed that in 81% of those studies, um, learners without disabilities showed either neutral or positive effects. So not, not negative offense, not, not the hypothetical. uh, If you have the troubled kids or behavior kids in your classroom, your kid education is going to be jeopardized and their, your kid isn't, is, is not going to learn. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, we're um, we're dealing with that here too with the whole voucher program, um, because and charter schools. You have parents. That's where it's now. It's because public schools are going to become segregated to be, you know, our most at-risk kids, and all the other parents who are already privileged enough to send their kids to private school, or if they want to send them to a charter or whatever, that's, that's what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. so it's like isolating, separating themselves from the herd and advocating for that and taking the same pipeline of money that is funding those, those vouchers and charter schools that funds public education. So essentially taking money out of public education that is already underfunded to begin with. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So, um, like that's so a, then public ooh. education just becomes more learners with disabilities and learners that are struggling right. or right. And it's underfunded. Some sort of like for instance, right. Texas is $2.2 billion underfunding 
statewide special education. Our district alone puts out 27 addition, 27 million of additional funds in special education that is not garnered by state or federal funding. Well, and so when IDEA was signed into law in 1975, so like over 40 years ago, um, almost, is that almost 50 years ago now, actually? 48 years it ago? It makes it feel like I'm like trying to do two decades ago, head. but we're really older <laughs> than that. Sadly. Um, I know. I'm like, how old am I? Um, yeah. So when it was signed into law in 1975, the federal government promised to fund 40% of special education and they've never funded more than like 15.3%. Right. It's called, it's been an unfunded mandate. It's fun. It's a good time. Yeah. Lots of compliance. Um, yeah. And and we get to ride high on that. And we're sold that, you know, as parents, well, our kids are entitled to that. And this is what needs to happen. Well, everyone's over here trying to get blood out of a turnip, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. you're cut, you have other parts of the system that are crippled. And I like to point out the monetary functions of this, because it's part of understanding the system at large, you know, and understanding right. that, yes, we desire to have these changes it's really you have to examine what it's going to take by looking at all of the entire landscape of, of the scenario and what we're up against. So mm-hmm. thank you for, for that. Um, so I've, I know I've now, I know a little bit about Maslow's hierarchy needs, um, but how that ties into why inclusion is important. Um, I'm very, I'm interested in. Could you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Have you, Tosh, have you heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? So this is, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is something that all educators learn in their teacher prep programs. Um, And it's something that as educators, we continue to go back to all the time. So basically what it is, so if you imagine like a pyramid or a triangle, there are all of these um, sort of rungs of this triangle or this pyramid at the top being self-actualization. So self-actualization is like you are the best that you can possibly be. You are, you know, contributing your fullest. You are like your fullest, happiest self. Um, But there are all of these things at the bottom of the pyramid that need to be in place in order for self-actualization to happen. So at the very bottom of this pyramid is physiological needs. So things like clean air, clean water, food, those kinds of things, right? So what do schools do to help with those things? They offer free and reduced lunch, right? Things like sleep. Like we know as as a teacher, it's like if you see your uh, student sleeping, like there's a reason why they're sleeping. Maybe your school, your classroom is the only place that they feel safe sleeping. Like they won't be able to reach the next sort of like layers of this pyramid unless they have that foundational piece, right? So Then the next thing is safety needs. So we have things like personal security, health, property, uh, employment, things like that, right, that keep you safe. I'm going to skip the middle rung for a second. The 
uh, next one above that is esteem. So this is like respect, um, status, being recognized, having freedom and strengths and things like that. And then at the top, you have self-actualization. Well, that one that's right there in the middle that I kind of feel like always gets left out is love and belonging. And when we talk about inclusive education, that middle one is really what we're talking about. That love and belonging, friendships, family, Mm -hmm. a sense of connection, feeling like you belong and that not only that you belong, but like you're valued and that when you aren't there, something's off, right? Like when, when a learner misses a week because they're sick or something's going on, everyone's like, where, where is he? Like, we miss him. He's our friend. We want him here. Right. There's that piece of it, but we don't really like schools do a lot of things to intentionally work on the physiological and the safety needs of learners. But like, what do they do? Can you think of anything that like your school does specifically to like really think about the love and belonging piece. Tosh, you're making me cry now. <laughs> Can you think of anything? No. Yeah. And I think that special education um, parents and and students feel that a lot. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm crying because I'm thinking about, you know, the things that Jack has said, um, you know, rolling back into this school year, am I going to be, are, are any of my friends going to be in my class? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I ask him, well, who are your friends? You know, I mean, he's going into fourth grade, so he's now been with the, pretty much the same kids every year since kindergarten. And, you know, he named the four or the three same boys that have been in, you know, his bed class with him since the beginning. And again, that's, that is that his safety net, you know, those are his friends, you know, although he's in class with a ton of other fourth graders, you know, but um, there's that level of not, there's no inclusion. There's no, he doesn't feel connected to those other kids, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and so having those three boys is his safety. Um, and I know a lot of parents are that way. I will tell you right now that my personal messages, I just got emails yesterday in my trustee mailbox from, from a parent in the district has a high schooler who is gnawing at the bit to say, I need to know more peer-to-peer groups I can get my kid involved in. I had an administrator from that school tell me that they put them, they sent them my way just so I could talk and have that peer-to-peer with that parent for this exact reason, right? And that, but she said that one of the things he wants to do is create a buddy system so that from, from another, you know, typical peer, and that's what some of our campuses have done because we are we have campuses that are considered unified partners and this is part of that belonging inclusion um, landscape. Like everyone knows these kids, these kids, even if they are in a self-contained classroom, if some of them are, 
that majority of the student body, even on a high school level, if you're a unified partner campus, they know your kid. And that is the elementary campus that my son is on. That was not the experience we started out with. It was, he didn't even, he didn't even feel connected to a particular child in his, you know, special education classrooms necessarily, more or less, he was always more connected to a novel adult. That was his comfort zone. Um, And now it is that, that makes a difference for a kid. It makes a difference for the family. I can breathe easy because I mean, that kid, my child, my son's more popular. They know I, they don't know me. They know Rory. I don't, I, it's mind blowing. And it was very emotional when I first started to experience it because I thought that could never happen. Mm-hmm. I thought we're we're always going to be lurking in the shadows forever. And I want parents to have this experience. I think, well, I think the hardest part about it, Brie, too, is, and you will say this is exactly why inclusion has to be, is that the older that our children get, they start to recognize that different. they are different, Mm -hmm. that they are not actually included, that they, um, that they don't have that, that middle part of the pyramid, right? you know? Yeah. And there comes like what you guys are saying is really the pain of social exclusion. And there are studies that have been done um, and we can put it in the show notes Um, I'm looking at it right now. They did a study um, where they took people who were like playing this little game um, on their phone. So they went into an MRI machine and they were playing this game and it was a really simple game. It was like three people throwing a ball and they're throwing a ball back and forth to each other. And um, at some point the two people or, you know, other players start throwing the ball to the subject less. So they're throwing the ball to each other more. And they're, so they're starting to exclude you and you're in this MRI machine. And what they found in this study was that the same part of your brain that lights up when you're experiencing pain, like physical pain lights up when you're not, when you're, when you are experiencing social exclusion. So we, it, it actually is like the same as physical pain being segregated. That is very hard to be with. I don't think Tosh expected that this <laughs> was going to be um, very, I knew it was going to be thought provoking. I knew it was going to be thought provoking, you know, because this is, So this is a good way to like actually go right into the last part of this first episode is, is what inclusion means to each of us, right. On on our, on our podcast, you know, individual as individuals. And for me, it is this more at large thing. It's this, it, my, my moral imperative mission for all the advocacy is that to improve better outcomes, quality of life, and accessible education 
And to me, the only way to do that is to really practice and firmly apply what real inclusive education means and defining what that means and carrying it out. Like I, I see it. I, I told a mom yesterday that I was speaking to because she's in the younger aspect, you know, her kid is about to turn five and she was talking about how, you know, she doesn't know if her fight kind of like where her fight is really worth it because, you know, she has her partner and maybe other outside sources saying like, you need to chill out. Like, this isn't good for you. Blah, 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 blah. I said, listen, one, your reaction to how you're feeling about things you need to do for your child is very relevant. It is a honest, relevant reaction. I, the one thing I I have no regrets about any of the things that I did for my son and how I fought so hard in those really early formative years because of where he's at now and where we're going. Like, I don't even care if there's more setbacks along the way. I know I've, everything I did got him to where he is right now. The only regret I have is that I didn't take better care of myself. And so if that's the only piece of advice I can give you is that do turn inward, take care of yourself, but do not have any regrets about what you're doing and what, where you're, how you're advocating for your son ever, ever. Because if we're not going to do it, no one, no one else is going to, it's just the truth of the matter. So, um, and my Tosh, are you, are you ready to say why your why? And then I can read the other girls. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay. girls. I wish I could give you um, tissues right now. I know I'm just over here, just wiping it all over my body and self. <laughs> um, I would say my, my biggest why is just, you know, just what Bree has said from the beginning for my child not to know that he is different from his peers, you know, for all of the support to be there, you know, to, to help him because of these, you know, um, deficiencies, I suppose, for lack of better words that he has, but, but it, for it to be, um, in a, in a totally typical environment and accepting, I want my daughter and my son to be able to feel the exact same. I want my daughter to be able to grow up in a world where inclusion isn't like you said, Bree, where it's not a word. It just is a thing. It's just what it is across the board for everything, whether it be education, you know, ethnicities, socioeconomic, everything, you know, you're a part of not apart from. Mm-hmm. So Brittany, it's, we all have the same kind of word that keeps repeating here. Um, but she'd said, you know, inclusive education is so important for Ruby to feel like she belongs And it's more than just the academic belonging in a classroom. She wants her to belong to the community around her and desires her to feel like she has valuable skills to contribute and share with those around her during and after the school years are complete. I mean, that's, I mean, we're, we're, we all are saying different versions of the very same thing, in my opinion, um, about, 
what it is that, you know, we want for our kids. Um, and kind of why, why Brie is so driven for this work. So I think, uh, for this part of where everything that we've covered today, is there anything additional that you want to cover inside of this part, these parts of the topics that we've covered, Brie, um, before we wrap it up, uh, or we, do you think that we're ready to, and then we can, I'll, we'll move right into our next installment. I think we're ready. We're ready. I think, we're yeah, ready. she's ready to educate. She's ready to, she's ready to, she's ready to drop it. the hammer. Let's, she's ready to drop the I, hammer. Let's figure out yeah. how. <laughs> okay. So for everyone listening, I, um, I think, you know, it's, it's been a while too, since, you know, every now and then, I, mean, I think when we did the grief series, we had a lot of obviously emotionally evoking conversations. And every now and then we are having some, some more of them. Um, but it's, they're a little bit far and few between. And so for our, for anyone listening out there, if this is having, you know, you're feeling that way, if you feel drawn or if you even need to take a break, obviously pause, stop, come back to it, re-listen to it when you can. Um, obviously these will be here. They will live here for you when you're ready to listen to them. But we've, obviously you get that we feel very passionate about this topic and it's really, really important that it is talked about and discussed in a meaningful way so that it empowers you mainly as a, as, as a parent. But I know we also have educators that listen to this. We have other family members. We have people that have different roles in our society that, again, listen to our podcast. And if there's takeaways that you can take away, know that this conversation might be one of the bigger conversations that need to be had in this space. So thank you for listening today and stay tuned for the next one. Hopefully you're just as ready as we are. (laughs) 